Welcome to the first ever podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Bohm. My guest this week is Julian Baker. We're celebrating the release of her third album, Little Oblivions, which is available now via Matador and 6131 Records. Uh, Julian and I go a ways back. We first became friends in 2015 when she was first signed to 6131, uh, just before sprained ankle. And watching her career soar these last six years has been one of the great joys of my life, and I truly mean that. Uh, like in the span of a year and a half here in L.A. alone, she went from playing All-Star Lane's Bowling Alley to opening for Touche at Chain Reaction to headlining the Center of the Arts in Eagle Rock to playing FYF Fest, then selling out the El Rey Theater, which is like an 800 cap room. Uh, it was truthfully unbelievable and so cool to see happen um, not long after she signed to Matador Records. Put out an incredible record. Then we got the majesty that is Boy Genius soon thereafter. Um, and that's, you know, and here we are now with Little Oblivions, uh, with a full band behind her. Uh, she's truly a talent and a voice that is something so special. And um, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you already know that. Um, so, yeah, it was fun to get into, uh, you know, to, to touch on all her first experiences uh, that led her to where she is today. So it was a real treat. Thank you for being here. Um, if you're new here, please subscribe. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. And um, if you have an extra minute to rate and review the podcast, can't stress how much that that truly helps. All right. Not going to take up any more of your time. This is the first ever podcast. And this is my conversation with Julian Baker. Julian, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. I've actually been looking forward to doing this uh for like a month or so because i i know you sean talked about it and it stuff was just all crazy so i'm glad we're finally getting to do this oh i appreciate it yeah it's it's funny it's always it's also always funny scheduling stuff with someone that you know so well but it's also it's like i have a i i admit i sometimes have that hard time um knowing how to properly uh go about Okay, well, this person is my friend, but I want to be respectful to the process as well. So I'm going to hit up their, you know, their their management and whatever, you know. It's such a it's such a bizarre thing to navigate. I feel like that's what I I I want to become more detached from it because I don't know that almost that almost seems like something I I'm identifying now as like this learned uh, adherence to a process, and it's like I don't know, it doesn't really have to be like that. Everything doesn't have to be so, but yeah, that's my bad. No, I mean, it's it's funny, too, because you want to be you also don't want to have conflict of like actual accidentally, re, you know, scheduling something at the same time as something else. And, you know, oh, it, it's good to have. Yeah. And it's good to have everybody on the same page. I totally understand that. So. Um, so, so, yeah, I went the you know, I went through through management who with Sean, who I've obviously known forever, too. So sure. um, it, it's totally fine. And here we are. It worked out and we're we're now hanging. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah. So you went. Uh, we were texting earlier. You you went on a run this morning. Talk to me about about your running schedule because because that's something that I, I always did at the gym, but then gym shut down, and now I've been doing it on the streets with on concrete, and it's a harder thing for me to adjust to. Uh, are, are you a run around the neighborhood type? I well. It's funny. I I came to running like not through any athletic um, channel. Just I, you know, I was never athletic as a kid, but I just started running because it helped me with anxiety. And I used to just run wherever, so I was primarily running in cities um, around whatever venue we were playing. And now I do almost only trail running here in mm. Nashville. So I have to like drive a ways. Um, but it's it's fun, and I think it's it's good to detach myself from the city, you know, like to be, it sounds so corny, but like to just isolate yourself reflectively in nature, I find is very healing. Um, but yeah, I can't, I'm going to be real, man. I can't stand running in LA. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> I have yeah, no, it, it feels like I'm gonna, <laughs> it's almost like a more morbid version of athletes who train in Denver because the air it's oh, right. so difficult to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, um, I'm, and I'm not hating on you at all because it gets like uh, 
muggy here and everything. Uh, not, Julian, but of all the things so to hard. hate, of all the things you, to to hate on in Los Angeles, we have one hundred percent accepted all responsibility for our bad air. We're like, yeah, of course, <laughs> tell us about it. Of course, talk shit on it. It's <laughs> so completely bad. valid. I'd rather have someone just, uh, you know, be like, yo, the air quality there sucks, than to be like, the traffic's bad. Because you're like, yo, have you ever been to a major city? Come on, get, get, relax. But yeah, geez, but yeah, it's like I. <laughs> The air no, quality it. here is a nightmare. Yeah. But yo, I mean, look, we can talk we can talk about all this stuff all day. I we know, should probably I get know. It. we should probably we should probably get on business. Well, firstly, uh, yo, congratulations on on Little Oblivion's being out. It's now been out for for over a week. When by the time this comes out, it'll been out for um just about a month. Um so congratulations. I mean, are you just so relieved it's finally out? I mean, I know it's been done for so long um how, like how, how are you just overall kind of feeling right now yeah it's it's bizarre i mean and i not to sound like negative or detached because i am i'm very proud of this body of work and i'm i'm also very proud of the the players that we've gotten together to perform the songs um and you know getting a chance to do that live even though there's nobody there but it does feel a little bit sterile it's like the exciting thing to me about music is having new material to play in front of an audience to have, um, you know, this, albeit one-sided, you know, like at least this musical conversation with people who are coming to engage with your music uh, physically and be present for it. And I don't know, it's um, <laughs> to whatever extent this is healthy, I have difficulty putting like a whole lot of weight in um like numer like quantified numerical or like internet popularity values and stuff so i'm just mm -hmm. like dang i don't get to play these songs for anybody um and right. it's a little bit sad but yeah i'm happy i'm happy at least just to have it out so i can stop like sitting on it and in, in anticipation you know yeah it's it's the thing where and, and i can completely relate to that like it's the it's the thing where you're now you feel great that people are able to hear this thing that you've been working so hard that you worked so hard on. So that's like out into the air, but I'm with you. It's like, as soon as it comes out and then now you can't perform immediately, you're sort of like saying to yourself, well, now what? Like, I, I, I sure. want to be doing the thing that this was for, like, this was the setup yeah. for me to do the thing that I love and I can't do the thing that I love. So now it's a, it's totally. an odd feeling. It's a completely odd yeah. feeling. Like, the week lament came out i felt a weird emptiness in myself where i was like yeah oh i'm so you know it's here it's arrived everyone's listening to it i'm seeing that people are enjoying it and that's making me feel really good but i also feel like i've now like uh, this part of me is gone where i can't really fully enjoy yeah. this gosh yeah oh it's exactly exactly and i think it's made me it's as heartbreaking as it is to have and I guess maybe heartbreaking is extreme because it's it doesn't at least seem to be forever it's just like presently frustrating like it's been difficult to have the thing the one thing that I have been working towards I guess uh since I was like in, in directly and indirectly since I was like 15 you know like that is my area of competence that's the thing I do is performing music and I always had this weird relationship with like why is that is it like that I um am as shy as I claim to be you know an exhibitionist in some way and I and I enjoy being seen and I don't think it's that it's that maybe you feel the same way but it's like you miss the exercise of trying to be understood in a community and it's like so difficult to build community without like physical proximity you know it's so jarring like not even just in the musical community but in all of our communities like i don't Definitely. know yeah no yeah. it's it's that and i think on maybe this may be kind of an egotistical thing to say i i can't i don't i'll let the listeners be the judge of this but like also you know when you see someone posting that they are listening to the record and things like that like that of course means a lot 
but I don't know how the record is really translating until I play it live. And then I, until I mm -hmm. see the reaction from people, until mm -hmm. I see, until I hear the applause when a song starts or ends and, and you know, and you start to learn which songs people like the most. And, you know, like that's when the record sure. becomes really an exploration as opposed to just it being available to people to listen to on their phone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the more further uh, we get just time wise from a when we could go to shows and when we maybe more people primarily thought of music as like, this is something that is created by people together live. And sometimes you get to see it. And the thing that you listen to when the song's stuck in your head, but you can't see that person play every night is the recording. Like, I wonder, and even with myself, and I won't take us too far down this, but like, you know, I, we did a lot more studio um experimentation and it was a lot more production heavy on this record and i wonder at what point things are you know transitioning for us mentally into where like music is something we experience in isolation um mm. and that's scary to me you know what i mean um yeah. even with myself i noticed like music is a place of retreat and solace and i and i retreat into music but that for me that doesn't mean like going to a show three times a week anymore it, it just means like walking around with my studio cans on all the time, <laughs> like walking right by yeah. my roommates with, you know? Yeah. I think it's going to be, especially the first year back, it's going to be really interesting just to sort of kind of be uh, just a fly on the wall to watching the mm -hmm. experience unfold again and just see how the reaction goes, you know, like it, we can convince ourselves that it's going to be this way or that, but we really don't know until it's happening. And sure. I'm hoping <laughs> I am hoping and praying that it's that it's um it's it's all of uh, it's the exact opposite of all the pessimism that I have about it in my head. I'm you're, hoping that it's just a goddamn celebration. To be, I feel like every yeah, okay, I was about to say everybody <laughs> that I know it seems like, you know, when I talk to people in that are tangentially or um integrally like connected with the music industry there, um they're always like <laughs> dreamily eyed we're both like <laughs> wondering about what it will be like when we can finally see live music again and i'm like of course jeremy what are you pessimistic about what <laughs> are you like <laughs> well i think people will be i mean i i choose to believe that people will be starved for it you know okay julian this, this is a podcast all about first experiences so let's get into some of that stuff um it's funny. Uh, I, this has been a reoccurring theme on the show when I'm lucky enough to talk to someone that um, not only am I a fan of, but I've been a, f a, a friend of for for years now. So but it's also exciting to kind of learn things that I, you know, didn't necessarily know about these people that have been in my life. So mm. um, what was the what was the first music that you found yourself being attached to that, like something that maybe felt more like yours as opposed to something that was kind of around you as you were growing up? Oh, wow. Um, Green Day American Idiot. I saw it on VH1, the the like Sunday morning top 20 countdown. I saw like some single from that record. And it was just because I don't know if my parents had had it on or something. And that's like my earliest memory of a band that didn't come directly from because there's plenty of awesome music that I appreciate as an individual, but that came to me by way of my parents, you know, like James Taylor and Elton John and um, all this stuff. But yeah, the first band that I like independently liked, and maybe it felt so salient because it was the first thing I was into that my parents were not all about. And right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But I mean, gosh, I was young. I was in... I was in like the third grade. When just, you know, doing research and stuff like that, I, I've seen you talk about Green Day in the past and it made me think, you know, I I, I know you're, uh, I'm about 12 years older than you or something. And what's funny is Green Day is, I think, the only band that I can really put a put my finger on that had such a renewed um, life. Like, because they were one of the bands for me as well as a kid. You know, I in 94, yeah. when when dookie came out that was yeah you know, it was the same thing but like then you fast forward 12 you know 10 12 years later and they do it again like with american Dude. idiot it's just so fascinating well yeah and i mean oh gosh it's just 
I think about that too, and I think about the space because I've, I don't know, <laughs> I was gonna sound like such a dweeb, like, well, I've read about Green Day, but uh, I've read just a couple of book, you know, uh, yeah, journalists that were writing about rock music at the time and um, a little bit before my time, but you know, it's like the scene they came out of is one that was so alien to me, and also one, you know, it's just this like California crusty punk kids scene and i always thought it was interesting that like hmm, that they were able to translate that to the highest level of this is gonna sound gross but like marketability you know what i'm saying like i yeah. don't i and i feel like they got flack for that i remember like <laughs> for like being whatever posers and i would ne i would never call you posers green day um but i <laughs> just in case you're listening yeah but i remember like yeah, i'm gonna tell this cool. story Relax. <laughs> <Here's> <laughs> um but I, I remember being like at the mall like with my acoustic guitar please forgive me i was like 12 but i was at the mall with my acoustic guitar and my friends and i were like singing a green day song in a record shop and this kid in like a full on like casualties like <laughs> liberty spikes like leather jacket like he's an extra from the set of the green room comes up to me and he's just like <laughs> what you playing and i was like green day and he was like i would love to hear you play a green day song and i didn't realize he was being sarcastic so then we started playing the same song over again and he was just like screaming at us like this is horrible oh these are like posers and i was like man you know what that kid missed about why punk rock music is important is that like they did they maintained like to a certain extent what you know the the tenets of punk the i guess uh descent towards the establishment or like the government um like skepticism about power structures uh questioning societal norms like they're carrying all of those messages in a very explicit way into the cult like the mass <laughs> dominant uh culture Totally. And that's cool because I would never have learned about music like that because I was an only child and everyone around me listened to like country music or music from the 80s. And I would have never learned about that if I didn't have, I don't know. It just kind of spoke to the fact that like Green Day actually did the most punk thing by taking something niche and making it, um, you know, a, this powerful like showing it to be this powerful piece of like a punk folk tradition of like song writing you know what i mean yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to hyper intellectualize it but <laughs> that no, really you're, meant a lot to me okay <laughs> you no know, i mean you're totally right i mean i i'm even if uh i do appreciate all these bands but like you know one of the things i've always really appreciated about bands like rage against the machine or system of a down or uh, Green Day or Rise Against. It's like these bands that come from punk, come from hardcore, and or come from you know whatever whatever uh, the counterculture movement there. And then you know they they get on a major label and they don't dial it back. If anything, they kind of dial it up. And uh, sure, you know. So I, I haven't asked anybody this, but it's it's like the same kind of question. But was it was a uh, was American Idiot like the first CD that you remember like buying for yourself too? No, because my parents wouldn't let me buy American Idiot on CD because it had explicit content, mm. and I remember being like, "What is explicit about it?" Like I'm sure he says the f word, right. you know. Our our boy Billy Joe loves an f word, yeah. but like. Uh, I'm on a podcast and I'm censoring myself like it's the radio. <laughs> God, I'm so vanilla. But yeah, I remember like there's a line in there that's like, um, maybe I'm the fag America. And I'm like, dude, I wish that young me could have known that that was a lyric. Like, right. but it, I only saw the clean version. I was like, that would probably have made me like feel more retaliatory and empowered as a person who is like, gets called queer slurs all the time but yeah i um sure. 
I wasn't allowed to buy that record, so I would go over to my friend's house that lived down the street and uh, secretly listen to it and try to memorize God, some... the lyrics in the track order. I, I, as I've gotten older, just like throughout the years, I romanticize that that exact thing the the hiding from your parents what you're listening to. I think that's such a an exciting part of growing up. I remember having um my mine was a Guns N' Roses cassette that uh, my mo- my move was I would lay on my bedroom floor with my with my like stereo in front of me with my headphones plugged into it and what I did was I had the Guns N' Roses cassette is for User Illusion 2 which that album <laughs> I think and I had the cassette <laughs> playing in the cassette player with my headphones in and I slid the case under my bed but what I had out was the case for something else that didn't have a parental advisory. So if my mom walked in, she'd be like, wow, oh, that's what he's sure. listening to. Paul Anka. <laughs> yeah. This, what a wholesome boy. That's yeah. so slick. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I didn't, well, <laughs> I was just about to be like, I used to just like, um, I didn't have an iPod for the longest time. I don't know. I just like <laughs> couldn't get one. So I would just record. I had a little cell phone so my mom could like call me when I was home from school before she was home from work. And I would just hold it up to um, the CD player in my room and make little 30 second clips of my favorite parts of songs and then listen to them on the bus out loud from the speaker on my phone. Oh Welcome my to I was. Su- it is not surprising to me at all that I had very few friends in middle school. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that kid <laughs> listening so to sweet, voice though. memos on the bus. That's so yeah, sweet, like, though. You can't be that sweet on the bus. In sixth, <laughs> it, it's the bus is not the the culture, the environment for a kid that tender. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, you mentioned playing guitar at the mall. Well, uh, I know you're, you know, you can play uh, a couple different instruments and I was curious what, uh, if guitar was your first instrument, was it? No, uh, piano was my first. Piano was, okay. Um, how old were you when you learned piano? I'm going to say 10. Um, it's kind of a nebulous thing because it's like my parents, um, got me this little like, whatever, like 40 something key. Uh, keyboard to learn on and then I took piano lessons for a while and then kind of like went away from it and came back to it but I couldn't I was horrible at piano lessons my teacher I don't think he liked me very much I would just straight up not practice and then show up and he would be like did you learn this song and I'd be like no I cannot read notes nor will I try it was it just never made sense in my brain so I I never progressed and now but now I kind of regret not having applied myself more so that I had, you know, more of a musical vocabulary. Was it a thing that your your folks pushed on you? Like, you need to learn how to play piano? Or did you show interest in it as a young person? I wanted to do it. Okay. And then they made me go to lessons. Or like, made, you know. <laughs> that sounds so Suggested. militant. But like, yeah, like, you know, your parents just do that. They just like put you in soccer and put you in taekwondo yeah. and make you go to piano lessons. And um, uh, that's not everybody's ex- experience, but that's okay. But anyway, yeah, so my parents just put me in it because I think, you know, that's the, that's what you do when you have a child that shows in- uh, interest in an instrument. And uh Yeah, it was fun, but I wanted to learn the guitar. I remember being teased again. It's just like so much of my musical trajectory is just like to avoid getting teased. (laughs) I think all of our trajectory (laughs) is to avoid being teased up until now. (laughs) That's what that's that's what uh, social assimilation is called. You're like, yeah, I really don't like being teased about this. I'm going to change my behavior. What was uh, what what was the first guitar that you got? It was an acoustic. Hmm. Got is an interesting word. So the guitar okay. I play, the like, the like sticker guitar, I still play it live, but it has a whole bunch of like Skate Park of Memphis stickers all over it. Um, oh, yeah. That actually belonged to my dad. He got it because, you know, he's just like, I never learned how to play guitar and I want to. More power mm-hmm. to you. So he got that. And then I like de facto inherited it. The first guitar that I ever got like for myself that I convinced my parents to get me was this like hideous 
oh my gosh, it was like, it wasn't hideous. It was just very extreme. It was like a neon glow-in-the-dark skull with like a snake around like like a Celtic cross. I know it's a lot, but it was like, it said like obey propaganda on it, right? Like the Uh Shepherd Fairy thing. Um, Yeah. And it was like this strat, but that was all like matte black and very metal. And I just plugged that sucker straight into a Line 6 Spider 3 and turned on that <laughs> insane setting. So it didn't even matter, of course, like whether the guitar was good or not, because I was basically just hearing like a bit crush noise. But right. that that was my first memory of of getting a guitar that was my own. And for some oh reason, I associate that guitar with learning the riff from Knee Deep by a Job for a Cowboy. <laughs> Which I was oh my. so proud of. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I love that that's on a strat too. That's Dude, awesome. Why? Yeah, it's just like all of those elements don't add up together. <laughs> I, ha- I had no idea. I was like, you know, I was like 12 or 13 and I wanted a guitar that looked cool. And then not long after that, we like sold it back. And I like whatever saved up allowance and wanted to get an SG because I became obsessed with Fallout Boy and like... Patrick Stone plays sure. an SG. But these this is still what I'm just like. I have no idea what the actual difference between the sounds of these guitars are. I'm just like 15 and I want to yeah. rock. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure that I still do. Um <laughs> but, but well, do you remember what the first song that you learned how to play on guitar was that like you were excited to learn? That like you're like, oh shit, I know how to play this. Oh man. I'm trying to think of like a riff that I learned because I learned how yeah, to play. Yeah, song like, is tough. Like, like R- at least riff. Yeah. First ever. Yeah, because I learned like chord shapes and then I was like, wow, I know a hundred songs now. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember learning the, I taught myself the solo to the song Dead by uh, My Chemical Romance. Wow, I, <laughs> the, I'm just like coming out of the gate with these perfect 2005 references. But Love yeah, it. I learned the song Dead from the Black Parade. And I wanted to learn it because I was just like, I'm going to pick the hardest, like the most complicated guitar solo I know of that I regularly listen to. And I'm going to mm. pl- pick through it note by note, like excruciatingly in my bedroom until I... Because I had, like, no concept. I never took guitar lessons. So I was, like, trying to learn that stuff, but with no foundation of theory. And it was just, like, me approximating it in a very clumsy way. But when I finally got to where I could, like, navigate at least a few, like, what I didn't know then were just, like, blue scales. (laughs) I was just, like, I am a guitar god. I can make all these, (laughs) like, basic, you know, the Memorial Day sale at Guitar Center Rift, like, like you know (laughs) (laughs) you know the riff the memorial day sale at guitar center riff that's great you know it's like (laughs) insert the guitar center commercial riff right yeah yeah Yeah. um that's awesome was uh was what came first this is this is interesting with you because obviously you're you're a solo artist but you've played in bands and you've done bands and etc like was your first show a solo thing or was your first show with a band Ooh, my first show that i played in front of people was me the guy who um like led youth group at our our church had Mm -hmm. like a band and he had like a handful of original songs. And then we did a cover of Slow Dancing in a Burning Room and Black Balloon by the Goo Goo Dolls. And I wow. was like 14 years old and I played lead guitar, um, <laughs> quote unquote lead guitar. I mean, yeah. it's not, there's some sophisticated parts in Slow Dancing in a Burning Room, um, but I'm, I dumbed them down a lot. But yeah, it was just at this coffee shop. It's kind of like an institution in Memphis. It's called Otherlands. But they were like, you know, it was just like a coffee shop gig with a whole bunch of people that knew us. And (laughs) that was it. And then I tried, I would come back there and try to do like solo sets of my weird (laughs) acoustic stuff. And then I I met Matthew Gillum and we started the Star Killers. And then I never really played with anybody else. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I was curious it, with that first show. And then you start, it sounds like, you know, you started then booking to do it yourself. Did you have like an immediate um, attraction to performing live? I always wanted to be in a band. Um, yeah. And I wanted to play guitar in a band. And the reason why I started singing for the band that I started with Matthew was because the person that was supposed to sing for us was like ended up being flaky <laughs> about it. And we literally had to audition for a talent show. And I was like, I'll sing. And then it like <laughs> wasn't that bad. And then that's been my strategy for my entire career is like, well, I tried that and I wasn't that bad at it. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm not excellent yet. But yeah, um, I I don't know. I, I've always had a bizarre relationship with performing because it's like, it's very nerve wracking for me. And I never imagined myself as somebody who was a good performer but at the same time it's like i can see old videos of myself playing in a house show band and being like going crazy and losing my mind and getting really into yeah. it and i'm like at what point like i wonder how learned that behavior is or like how i even accessed that part of myself because i don't know i would consider myself like really self-conscious and wouldn't want to be up in front of people otherwise yeah. Um, you know, I knowing you as long as I have seen you live now, as many times as I've had, or, I, or I, as I have, um, you know, one of the things that I've always noticed, especially in the early bunch of times I saw you, is you have in the past always been pretty hard on yourself after a show, where like you'll come off stage and I'll just have my eyes, you know, like the hairs will be completely you know completely standing up and i'll just be so blown away by how great the show was and then i you know give you give you some space and then i talk to you after and you know you're you've been down on yourself like oh yeah you know could have been better or something like that did that start pretty early on and follow up like has that at all sort of subsided at all it's hard to say i mean there used to be something um that was kind of like, you know, a positive adrenaline about, you know, <laughs> every show we ever played, which was like mostly house shows, like something on my rig would break. It was like a running <laughs> joke because I just had like crappy gear and something would break every single show. And it was fun because it was like, you know, our music existed and was known by people as a live work as a performance you know it took us forever to save up money to even like record our stuff or like make a little cd of it <laughs> and so it's like the more that maybe i've become a musician as my i don't know i don't like career but as like my occupation i think yeah. i've become increasingly more critical of myself and also something i noticed just like you know watching back sessions of uh playing the new record songs with my uh with my friends you know who have played in bands with me before it's like i think what made it so easy to be self-critical about those shows that you would have seen me at is that um I was performing alone, you know? It's like <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. I'm the only one steering the ship. Like, I'm making all the loop layers, and I'm playing all the notes, and there's no... I'm making the sound, and then maybe, you know, it's like Aisha or Camille is uh, doing violin accompaniment, and, like, that mitigated some of the pressure a little bit, but still, you know, it's, like, a lot to be in charge of, and now that I'm back inside of a band context, I can more easily relax into that place that I accessed when I was a teenager. It feels really good, honestly. Like, it feels, like, childlike fun to oh, be able I love to that. accept. Well, because it's, like, I can be a control freak and um, insanely critical of myself, but I adore my friends and I find you know we often have so much more capacity for being compassionate with than with others than we do for ourselves and so like once I relegate the responsibility of playing to other people and I realize that it is this very interactive volatile space to be in I can just appreciate it for what organically happens and for what I'm making 
with other people at that point. It's not just like all a reflection of myself, you know? Absolutely. I remember watching you uh, when you did even like Colbert, I think it was the first time. And, you know, you're by yourself with your whole setup and you're doing all the loops and stuff. And it's like, it's almost like watching a magic trick. You know, it's like, <laughs> she going to get it all? She going to do all the things? Is it, sure. you know, like, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, it's stress. You know, it's like watching, it's, it's genuinely like watching a really intricate um, trick. It's not just, oh, this, you know, she's singing great. You know, like her voice sounds incredible or like, you know, how she's playing guitar is great. It's like you're, you're reliant upon all these different little things that are, you're setting up as you go. And it's, you know, that's what I think makes those performances even more special because you know what's all on the line as you're watching. You yeah, know? sure. So. Yeah. And I, it's like, I don't know why I put, put myself in that space. I mean, it sort of just happened because of the way that I created the record and that there's really no need for. Well, anyway, but it's like, yeah, it's it's just interesting to have done all that almost like as a contrarian, like just to prove right. that I am capable of doing all these things. Um, and I don't know why, I don't know that I felt that I needed to go like above and beyond to prove to the audience my competence for being a musician, but, um, <laughs> you know, and then when it does, like, honestly, the feeling you have of like, is, is it all going to work out? <laughs> That's like the feeling I have the whole set. And it's honestly <laughs> like, I can enjoy playing the songs way more now because <laughs> I'm not oh, freaking I bet. out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, and well, I, I'm curious if you had if uh, if doing like the Boy Genius stuff, especially that tour, um, was like a big relief for you. I mean, yes, you were also doing a solo set um, before the full band did it, but like, I'm I I'm just I'm putting my own I'm projecting my thoughts onto you. But I was it a thing where after you were done performing your solo set on the Boy Genius tour, when it came time to do the Boy Genius set, was it just like kind of just like a big relief more that so was the most relaxed set. i would yeah. be yeah totally i mean yeah that was the most relaxed i would be like throughout the entire night because then you know there's there were like nine players on stage uh, right and it felt very familial and it was a place where i could just kind of like blend into this larger functioning body that's um you know making a big wall of sound sure no absolutely uh, we can go back just a little bit here. So I know, um, so the Star Killers turned into Forrester. When you and I first became friends, Forrester, uh, you know, was like a, was was still a big part of your life because Sprained Ankle came out the same year um, that I, I know like Forrester was, was still thriving. Um, mm -hmm. Was the, okay, well, first, uh, my question is, was Star Killers the first band that you ever went to like a recording studio for? Or had you done any recording Did studio Star stuff Killers for like solo? Ever record? I think we recorded with like one of our friends who was grinding to become an engineer, like in a church lobby or a church sanctuary, like once. But yeah, we didn't go to a recording studio until we, until like our friends in college had like time at the university of memphis studio or the middle tennessee studio yeah the star killers album was just made in our friend cody's like converted attic oh okay yeah on like yeah. base. and what's the story <laughs> with the label that put that out which is the fly the light records like were that was that like friends from memphis that yeah offered to do it kind of a thing or what's the backstory there yeah honestly it was like i cannot even imagine why a person would do it but they were just like it's a double LP, Jared. It's great. Yeah. We, it, we made the little, like, I mean, we, but um, yeah, just one of our friends from around the music scene uh, in Memphis had reached out to us and said, I believe in your band and, like, I'm just going to put up, you know, there's like an agreement to, I guess, quote unquote, like, recoup, like, how much we owe uh, him paying it back for uh, upfront pressing it for us. But, that it's like that didn't even matter. I was like, we're there's no way we're gonna sell all of these, <laughs> and it's not even that many. Like, we had a release show for it at a place called the Abbey in Memphis, and I don't know, it's like we sold a decent bit. I think there were maybe like 100, 120 people there, and that was like the most successful feeling 
of my life. I was like, yes, this is awesome. Does it blow your mind that that record is on, it's on Discogs for like 300 and some odd dollars now? That makes me so, okay. Also, well, I don't know if there are any more, but for a while, uh, my boy Creech, Alex Creech, uh, was just like up on Reddit and Discord, just like mailing them to people for like not that. Which I love. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, don't do that. Like, don't make right, this. Yeah. Because it's, I don't know. <laughs> so No, I understand. It's for like $300. No. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's wild to me that we got that opportunity as young as we were. You know, to like hold a vinyl record in our hands and to listen right, to it on a, a special record feeling. player. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was overwhelming. It felt like a lot. And you know, it's like the songs... However, the song's aged. <laughs> I'm trying to be nice, but um, yeah, I still have a, very, a quite emotional attachment to that record and um, the time it was made, you know? Right. Um, so what was the first experience for you going to like a, a big studio? Was it for Turn Out the Lights? Because Sprained Ankle you kind of did on your own too, right? Well, yeah, I had a friend, Michael Hegner, who was in the same recording industry like audio program as I was and he had come by some like free like this uh situation where he had free studio time at uh Space Bomb because he was working there at the time and I just rode up to Richmond Virginia because I heard that there was free studio time and I really wanted to record mm -hmm. and um it's funny. It's like, you know, Forrester was supposed to go up there and then it's, you know, the usual logistic problems of I live out of the city and everybody can't get off work and we're trying to like coordinate rides and we're like broke 18 year olds. So it ended sure. up just being me. And I just put out this record of songs that um, I had presented at practice and that didn't really fit the Forrester project. And yeah, it's just always so weird to tell that story. How circumstance led to the sprained ankle yeah. record. Yeah, that's well, it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's yeah. it's one of those things that you never thought could have turned out the way it did. And look, you know, look at things now. And I remember that yeah. record was had been done for a long time. I feel like before uh, our friends at six one three one put it out, like. I feel like it was even like free on Bandcamp for a long time. It was like $3 on Bandcamp. <laughs> I like yeah. walked into, I put it up um, just like for my friends on Facebook. And I like walked into the computer lab with like a couple hundred bucks I had pulled out of my checking account that I got from Bandcamp the month that I put it up. And I was just like, boom, there you go, Michael. <laughs> I was like, thought I was hot shit. I was like, wow, we've we made like 300 bucks off this. This is yeah. nuts. Um, <laughs> and I was like big stunting. But like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's It was very sweet. And then, you know, yeah, 6131 reached out and we took it down off of Bandcamp. Right, right. And that's certainly when when, uh, when our friendship started. And then, so the, then, um, you know, turn out the lights. Uh, you, you want to go do that. So I get, I, what, I'm, what I've been getting at is, um, how was your first experience like going to like a big a big studio like do you thrive in a studio environment or um like what do you prefer do you prefer performing live or do you prefer the studio or just how does it make you feel in general oh my gosh i feel like it's so much depends on the studio and also i had a little bit of it was kind of shocking to me the first because i for turn out the lights um i went to Part of the studios because you know it was like hometown Memphis people. I wanted to go there, but it uh, is this massively nice studio, and we were in like the big room. And I think honestly, at that time, I was so overwhelmed by the fact that I was in a studio setting and that I was in control, and that I, w I wasn't working off of borrowed time and. You know, I wasn't like trying to get this done in some weird graveyard shift school assignment at 4 a.m. Um, mm. That I didn't know how to utilize all of the things, like all of the experimentation that like that studio could have enabled us to do. And also it's like I intentionally made the record in seven days because... 
that was I just didn't know. I didn't have it in my brain that it was like a practice too. Well, it's funny you talk about that and and uh, about the you know doing it in seven days or whatever. I think that's because it's a you know we're all a product of um, coming from little means when it comes to recording. You know, like you obviously you drove out to Richmond to record in this like free studio space because you know time is money and all of those sorts of things. So it's like of course you yeah. get into the big studio and you just like you probably have it sort of built in your head where like, I just need to get in and out of here and get this record done. And so yep, I'm not wasting exactly. anybody's time and, and all of that. Oh, I completely, <laughs> completely understand that. Yeah. Um, I mean, we did Parting the Sea in, in four and a half days. We did our first record in That's three days. That's so nuts to me. Did you guys, did you guys record it live or did, did. you multi-track it? We, oh. uh, Parting the Sea, we did live. We, we drove out to Kansas and we did it. Um, we did all the music live and then I did all of the vocals in one day and was the no. worst day of my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So, did you have, did you do all the vocals in one day because you had to like, yes, that's nerve wracking to me to be like, if I do not get this vocal part right now, because I, I can't oh. even tell you how many times I've spent like four hours, like, go, like waiting 30 minutes, coming back to a vocal part and being like, this mm -hmm. is never going to happen. Holy moly my head like i didn't know what i was doing at all when it came to like screaming in the yeah. sense of like not hurting myself so like i had whatever the gnarliest level of of headache you could have possibly had just like oh it's such pain the, uh, and then the poor guy ed rose who uh who recorded it uh, had to then mix the entire record in one day on our last <gasps> day there and what? it was it was an experience let me tell you that but but, you know, like wow. those rushed circumstances land you in some really special moments. I mean, obviously, sprained ankle, you know, uh, jump-started your entire, you know, career. And uh, parting the sea certainly did for us. So, like, yeah, you know, those things are special for, for uh, given the circumstance. In the moment, they certainly True. may seem a little stressful. But, um, yeah, and I sure. love that for the new record, you ended up still going to 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 your friend because to calvin because mm -hmm. like yeah you you were at this point certainly probably were given the opportunity to go to pretty much anywhere you wanted or travel and go record in some you know in another country or or whatever but yeah. there's something really special about someone who wants to stick to their hometown and do it where they're comfortable well yeah and i mean that that was the whole like that was the idea that was being presented to me by like uh, most of the people that I work with, you know, is that like I should go and um, go to like London or like go out, you know, some one of the big cities that's not, I mean, I guess Nashville yeah. is a big city, but, um, and I feel like I just, I'm so glad that whatever chaos uh, and turmoil in my life ended up happening so that those plans would be canceled. Because I think, honestly, like, I think it took returning to a space where it was just myself and my friend making music to like, that's why I think I'm, I'm sort of critical about turn out the lights now, because like what you're saying about parting the sea and sprained ankle is like, we're in similar positions on those records because we're pressed for time. We have this like frantic energy of like, making something with limited resources and putting it out into the world because it is gnawing at us inside and because we have to put it out and because we're passionate about it. And I think it's funny because it's like with Turn Out the Lights, I there were more resources available to me, but I wouldn't let myself accept them. Um, and then it's like, I don't know. I just, I didn't know how to <laughs> cope with that. And so then I ended up like making this thing that was, rushed and like hyper polished because i didn't give myself the time to figure out like what an actual process looks like you know but i'm sure like you find that too and i wonder it's i wanted to ask you about this like i do you feel like you've become more aware of or like intentional with your process as a musician as you have progressed like throughout your career and continued releasing records and had 
I guess just like a higher volume of experiences, you know what I mean, of data of like, how do I best write songs? How do I best create music? Like, because at some point it's like you just have to grind writing music for XP <laughs> to figure right. out um, when you're doing it. Um, like in an, I don't want to say wrong, but like in an unsuccessful No, I know what you mean. No, yeah. I, I think like anything, over time you you just figure out where you're most comfortable but a problem that i have and i don't know you if you've ever dealt with this is once you think you're confident in what works best for you you can find yourself then being like well now i can just kind of procrastinate a little because i know it's going to be fine you know or like i know it's gonna you know you allow yourself a little more freedom to be kind of a shit about it so like um you know when for instance when we started writing this last record um Mm -hmm. i knew i was like well we need to have at least four or five songs done musically before I start writing lyrics. Cause I need to be able to have like, look at a, at like a bunch of different, I guess, palettes to kind of like gauge what sort of feeling I want behind each one of these songs, whether like the song is going to be maybe kind of an angry song. The song is going to be a little bit more of this song or something like that. Um, mm. And then, you know, so, uh, you know, I, and also having a fire under my ass will always help me too, where it's like, if sure. I don't have a really uh, a recording date put in front of me being like, yo, you need to have all these lyrics done by February, then I'm going to probably not work as fast as I should. Are you like that, too? Yeah. Like, do you need to have a date in front of you as like an as like a an end date to get everything prepared? I don't even know that that help i guess it's much more i was about to say like i don't even know that that helps me even i feel like i go over deadline on everything um (laughs) but that's more that's more i guess when i'm writing like articles or like prose or like responding to um like a field of questions um yeah i don't know i get option anxiety it's not even like i can procrastinate it it's like I will overthink it until I run it into the absolute ground. Like I think um, probably having a limited amount of writing space is better for me in a similar way because it helps me be quicker about my work because I have to trust my intuition. You know, like I don't have time to deliberate endlessly between like whether this should be like in a straight measure or like a syncopated one or like a triplet thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i find myself doing that all the time in just songwriting like you know when i have no <laughs> um plans for it before i before i wrap up with some of the last questions the, some of the last stuff is um what was your first tour was it a was it a star killers tour or was it solo <sighs> my first tour yes it was a star killers tour oh my goodness it was, was it like a weekend warrior parts. or was it like a, it like wasn't a week? like a weekend warrior it was like a couple of weeks we, we did another tour as the star killers the first tour like we were like in high school and my dad had to come with us because Love it. <laughs> the other guy playing guitar was like too young to go across like state lines without a guardian <laughs> um love it and we played oh man it was we tried so hard we actually this is uh, i love this story it was like our first ever tour and we accidentally punished that band defeater because they were playing in a town that we were also playing in and we like gave them one of our big lps that was like <laughs> we were like can we afford to give that away because like every yeah. ten dollars matters <laughs> Yeah. When you um and yeah, I feel so bad about that to this day. Um, especially just because it's like you know now I I play with Aisha, um, and her partner is Jake, so it's just like funny. But we were so like so incredibly green. I mean, my dad was that. there. We like broke down on the side of the road because put the wrong gas in the truck. Oh no! So sad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It was you have to learn though. You gotta learn. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I feel like the the Forester ones were a little bit bleaker because we were much more of an in a sense like just on our own with like all of our pooled savings. Um like I don't know, I like <laughs> had to like empty out my account to like get us a new tire and we were all just like broke, sleeping like eight people to a floor in a single room um Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, those was, was my first couple of tours were very much like that. They were like week, two weeks. Yo, yeah. but those that's what makes us who we are now. You have <laughs> totally. I yeah. mean, like th there's no way that that doing those tours didn't make you have such a deep, deep appreciation for the comforts that you that you have now. You know? Dude, yeah. Well, and I remember like the first time we hung out in Los Angeles, it was like we were both talking about those kinds of stories, but also how there is a, a little bit of a there's like a subtext to the way I think that people like from the scene or whatever <laughs> talk about their old bands and about the the grind that they've been on and about their their most horrible stories. And And to one degree, it is kind of like the bravado that we invent uh like the mythology we construct about like wow um i really did sleep on the cold hard ground to play music for like months at a time that's mm -hmm. like you know like i think that's like something that people go through and then retell as like this comedic or like heroic story because <laughs> yeah. it is very hard and it's emotionally demanding to do that kind of stuff and we need the like mutual validation from each other i used to yes. think of it in a much more um cynical way of being like everybody's just out here trying to prove that they grind like they, they grind the hardest right you know? like yeah <laughs> if you think that's bad then like story right. top olympics but um, <laughs> now i'm just like yeah man like people especially because i can't even tell you how many countless bands that we played with that never got the recognition that I believed that they deserved for being brilliant musicians. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, I'm trying to decide what I want to do first here. So this is the first episode that I fielded questions from from the audience, you know, like a couple weeks ago, admittedly, you know, I'm trying to I've been trying to think of ways to help kind of build the podcast and, you know, have it be a little sure. bit more uh, listener involved. So I reached out asking for for uh, for you know, if anyone had anything. So I, I chose three random questions. Um, so let's do those wait. first and then, I'll, then we'll end the show with my last final question with you. But um, okay, we can keep great. these kind of brief too. So okay. um, here, I'll do this one first. Uh, Louisa at All on Sykes asked on Twitter, uh, what bands and artists uh, were you listening to when writing Little Oblivions? Like, was there anything new maybe that you had sort of dove into as an influence? Oh, man. Um, I know I've been talking about this a ton recently, but I really, and it, it kind of preceded writing uh, this record, but I really loved that record, um, Good at Falling by the Japanese house. And also, um, I've been kind of digging back through Torres's discography and recognizing just like how consistently I return to those records, especially while working on this one. And, you know, records like Sprinter and Three Futures are just really, like, boundary-pushing albums uh, for somebody who gets categorized uh, so often as, like, a songwriter uh, or, like, an indie singer-songwriter. And I, I don't know. I just find so much inspiration in that. Nice. Okay. Perfect. Um, wait, this is, this, this is one I'm curious to hear your insight on. I, I think maybe cool. some of the things we spoke on earlier uh touched on this just a little bit but um on instagram djy writes asked are you a review reader do you think it's easy for artists to get lost in the discourse of your own stuff i'm assuming Ooh, i will keep this brief but ah i wish that i could say i i wasn't but i am i read hmm. reviews i look at reviews of um my music and I read, I read interviews because I'm always curious to see how I come across. And it's almost like, to me, it is information gathering about if I am being clear enough about what I I've prioritize about the music or about myself as an artist or um, what I want to promote as an individual. Um, and then I read critiques of my own music because it helps me, like... It <laughs> in a really mean way, like it helps keep my head small um, and mm. it helps give me perspective on like that I do whoever, however, however many people are listening to your music, like you still exist within a niche and, you know, to be aware of that. 
but also because it's like you know it helps me identify the things about my music that I'm proud of and that I'm doing deliberately you know what I mean like when someone challenges your ideas I feel like that's when you can distill them into a like clearer (laughs) uh, into like a clearer goal you know like because you understand like when people push back against your ideas you're like no I actually did all of these things deliberately and I have x and y belief I don't know I I'm very fascinated in that stuff though (laughs) just like um sure so and I guess uh, to answer the second part of the question it's like yeah Yes, I think artists can get lost in the discourse. That's awesome. Yep. Okay, last one. Um, okay. So the, the Ellie Badge uh, asked on Twitter. Uh, <gasps> I know that. Sorry. I, oh, you know this person. I, yeah, um, but go ahead. Okay. What's up, Ellie uh, Badge? You guys should talk about your individual experiences with Andy Hull. Uh, he seems like a fun dude to hang out with. So you did that cover. You did the Pedro the Lion cover uh, with Andy mm-hmm. back in like, what, 2018 or something? Oh my gosh. Yeah, maybe it came out in 2018, but Oh, we it might were... have been recorded before that. God, no, it was recorded way before that because I was like a little I was also like still very green to like being on a label or like having any remote amount of like attention or recognition sure. in the music sphere. And we recorded that together and I was just like geeking out so bad and punishing Andy so hard being like, oh my gosh, like my hero. Um, And then (laughs) when I brought, I was so excited and I brought it and it's like, you know, because of whatever, how there's so many more entities involved in releasing music, um, the, the more you get into it. And so it just like was shelved for so long and I didn't, maybe at that time I didn't, um, I didn't know how to be pestering about something like (laughs) I didn't know how to just um, like insist on something because I didn't want to be honorary about it. But it took so long to come out. And when it finally came out, I was just so gratified because it was so much fun to make. Cool. Well, that was the three. So uh, my final question for you and I'll I'll let you get on with your day uh, (laughs) is do you remember the first time where you felt like you were doing the thing that you'd been working so hard towards? All of the times I can think of our shows, right? Like, there's not really another time where I felt more intensely gratified by music than than at a show. But it's not even necessarily like playing a massive show or playing like a cool show or getting to play with, you know, some of my favorite artists ever, like, which have all happened to me. But I, I think... I don't know. I talked about this earlier in the episode, but I the first time I ever felt like, wow, I worked so hard for this. This is truly what I'm passionate about. I feel fulfilled in this moment. I feel connected with the people in this room. Um, was that the Starkiller's American Blues album release show? Because, like, I don't know. I think about that show a lot when I try to pinpoint and remember and focus on what I love about music. Um, which I try to like meditate on so that I don't get very far away from it because I think that would be unhealthy for me. But like, you know, I could have probably told you everyone in that room's name. And, you know, it was this thing that just people around our community out of the goodness of their hearts had lended, you know, financial uh, help or had given us a space to be or had given us a contact of a band in another city. And... um it felt very fulfilling to be able to give this tangible thing uh, that represented so much of ourselves back to a community that we had been performing for and that had been believing in us for such a long time. That's awesome. I mean, look, Julian, I'm so, I'm, you know, I'm so happy to, you know, call you a friend and and known you this long and I'm forever (laughs) thankful for you always being so so generous with your time whether it's doing my doing my silly podcast or singing on my records uh, yeah, any of that good. stuff good i love it it's an honor <laughs> and a pleasure to be able to collaborate with you friend hell yeah uh all right well you get on with your day uh all i right, appreciate you, you all right of course bye julian all right bye man
Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you can spare a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple, it helps the show gain more visibility and that can make all the difference. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week. Yeah.